Volume the First, Chapter Four of Caleb Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Darvinia. Caleb Williams by William Godwin. Volume the First, Chapter Four. This was only one out of innumerable instances that every day seemed to multiply of petty mortifications which Mr. Tyrrell was destined to endure on the part of Mr. Falkland. In all of them Mr. Falkland conducted himself with such unaffected propriety as perpetually to add to the stock of his reputation. The more Mr. Tyrrell struggled with his misfortune, the more conspicuous and inveterate it became. A thousand times he cursed his stars, which took, as he apprehended, a malicious pleasure in making Mr. Falkland, at every turn, the instrument of his humiliation. Smarting under a succession of untoward events, he appeared to feel, in the most exquisite manner, the distinctions paid to his adversary, even in those points in which he had not the slightest pretensions. An instance of this now occurred. Mr. Clare, a poet whose works have done immortal honour to the country that produced him, had lately retired, after a life spent in the sublimest efforts of genius, to enjoy the produce of his economy and the reputation he had acquired in this very neighbourhood. Such an inmate was looked up to by the country gentlemen with a degree of adoration. They felt a conscious pride in recollecting that the boast of England was a native of their vicinity, and they were by no means deficient in gratitude when they saw him, who had left them an adventurer, return into the midst of them, in the close of his days, crowned with honours and opulence. The reader is acquainted with his works. He has, probably, dwelt upon them with transport, and I need not remind him of their excellence but he is perhaps a stranger to his personal qualifications. He does not know that his productions were scarcely more admirable than his conversation. In company he seemed to be the only person ignorant of the greatness of his fame. To the world his writings will long remain a kind of specimen of what the human mind is capable of performing. But no man perceived their defects so acutely as he, or saw so distinctly how much yet remained to be effected. He alone appeared to look upon his works with superiority and indifference. One of the features that most eminently distinguished him was a perpetual suavity of manners, a comprehensiveness of mind, that regarded the errors of others without a particle of resentment, and made it impossible for any one to be his enemy." He pointed out to men their mistakes with frankness and unreserve. His remonstrances produced astonishment and conviction, but without uneasiness, in the party to whom they were addressed. They felt the instrument that was employed to correct their irregularities, but it never mangled what it was intended to heal. Such were the moral qualities that distinguished him among his acquaintance. The intellectual accomplishments he exhibited were principally a tranquil and mild enthusiasm, and a richness of conception which dictated spontaneously to his tongue, and flowed with so much ease, that it was only by retrospect you could be made aware of the amazing variety of ideas that had been presented. Mr. Clare certainly found few men in this remote situation 
that were capable of participating in his ideas and amusements. It has been among the weaknesses of great men to fly to solitude, and converse with woods and groves, rather than with a circle of strong and comprehensive minds like their own. From the moment of Mr. Falkland's arrival in the neighbourhood, Mr. Clare distinguished him in the most flattering manner. To so penetrating a genius there was no need of long experience and patient observation to discover the merits and defects of any character that presented itself. The materials of his judgment had long since been accumulated, and at the close of so illustrious a life he might almost be said to see through nature at a glance. What wonder that he took some interest in a mind in a certain degree congenial with his own! but to Mr. Tyrrell's diseased imagination, every distinction bestowed on his neighbour seemed to be expressly intended as an insult to him. On the other hand, Mr. Clare, though gentle and benevolent in his remonstrances to a degree that made the taking offence impossible, was by no means parsimonious of praise, or slow to make use of the deference that was paid him for the purpose of procuring justice to merit." It happened at one of those public meetings, at which Mr. Falkland and Mr. Tyrrell were present, that the conversation, in one of the most numerous sets into which the company was broken, turned upon the poetical talents of the former. A lady who was present, and was distinguished for the acuteness of her understanding, said she had been favoured with a sight of a poem he had just written, entitled, An Ode to the Genius of Chivalry which appeared to her of exquisite merit. The curiosity of the company was immediately excited, and the lady added she had a copy in her pocket, which was much at their service, provided its being thus produced would not be disagreeable to the author. The whole circle immediately entreated Mr. Falkland to comply with their wishes, and Mr. Clare, who was one of the company, enforced their petition. Nothing gave this gentleman so much pleasure as to have an opportunity of witnessing and doing justice to the exhibition of intellectual excellence. Mr. Falkland had no false modesty or affectation, and therefore readily yielded his consent. Mr. Tyrrell accidentally sat at the extremity of this circle. It cannot be supposed that the turn the conversation had taken was by any means agreeable to him. He appeared to wish to withdraw himself, but there seemed to be some unknown power that, as it were, by enchantment, retained him in his place, and made him consent to drink to the dregs the bitter potion which envy had prepared for him. The poem was read to the rest of the company by Mr. Clare, whose elocution was scarcely inferior to his other accomplishments. Simplicity, discrimination, and energy constantly attended him in the act of reading, and it is not easy to conceive a more refined delight than fell to the lot of those who had the good fortune to be his auditors. The beauties of Mr. Falkland's poem were accordingly exhibited with every advantage. The successive passions of the author were communicated to the hearer. What was impetuous and what was solemn— were delivered with a responsive feeling and a flowing and unlaboured tone. The pictures conjured up by the creative fancy of the poet were placed full to view, at one time overwhelming the soul with superstitious awe, 
and at another transporting it with luxuriant beauty. The character of the hearers upon this occasion has already been described. They were, for the most part, plain, unlettered, and of little refinement. Poetry in general they read, when read at all, from the mere force of imitation, and with few sensations of pleasure. But this poem had a peculiar vein of glowing inspiration. This very poem would probably have been seen by many of them with little effect, but the accents of Mr. Clare carried it home to the heart. He ended, and as the countenance of his auditors had before sympathized with the passions of the composition, so now they emulated each other in declaring their approbation. Their sensations were of a sort to which they were little accustomed. One spoke, and another followed by a sort of uncontrollable impulse, and the rude and broken manner of their commendations rendered them the more singular and remarkable. But what was least to be endured was the behaviour of Mr. Clare. He returned the manuscript to the lady from whom he had received it, and then addressing Mr. Falkland, said with emphasis and animation, Ha! This is as it should be. It is of the right stamp. I have seen too many hard essays strained from the labour of a pedant, and pastoral ditties distressed in lack of a meaning. They are such as you, sir, that we want. Do not forget, however, that the muse was not given to add refinements to idleness, but for the highest and most invaluable purposes. Act up to the magnitude of your destiny. A moment after, Mr. Clare quitted his seat, and with Mr. Falkland, and two or three more, withdrew. As soon as they were gone, Mr. Tyrrell edged further into the circle. He had sat silent so long that he seemed ready to burst with gall and indignation. "'Mighty pretty verses,' said he, half talking to himself, and not addressing any particular person. "'Why, aye, the verses are well enough. Damnation!' I should like to know what a shipload of such stuff is good for. Why, surely, said the lady who had introduced Mr. Falkland's ode on the present occasion, you must allow that poetry is an agreeable and elegant amusement. Elegant, quotha! Why, look at this Falkland! A puny bit of a thing! In the devil's name, madam, do you think he would write poetry if he could do anything better?' The conversation did not stop here. The lady expostulated. Several other persons, fresh from the sensation they had felt, contributed their share. Mr. Tyrrell grew more violent in his invectives, and found ease in uttering them. The persons who were able in any degree to check his vehemence were withdrawn. One speaker after another shrunk back into silence, too timid to oppose, or too indolent to contend with the fierceness of his passion. He found the appearance of his old ascendancy. But he felt its deceitfulness and uncertainty, and was gloomily dissatisfied. In his return from this assembly, he was accompanied by a young man, whom similitude of manners had rendered one of his principal confidence, and whose road home was in part the same as his own. One might have thought that Mr. Tyrrell had sufficiently vented his spleen in the dialogue he had just been holding, but he was unable to dismiss from his recollection the anguish he had endured, 
"'Damn Falkland!' said he. "'What a pitiful scoundrel is here to make all this bustle about! "'But women and fools always will be fools. "'There is no help for that. "'Those that set them on having most to answer for. "'And most of all Mr. Clare.' He is a man that ought to know something of the world and past being duped by gewgaws and tinsel. He seemed, too, to have some notion of things. I should not have expected him of hallooing to a cry of mongrels without honesty or reason. But the world is all alike. Those that seem better than their neighbours are only more artful. They mean the same thing, though they take a different road. He deceived me for a while, but it is all out now. They are the makers of the mischief. Fools might blunder, but they would not persist, if people that ought to set them right did not encourage them to go wrong. A few days after this adventure, Mr. Tyrrell was surprised to receive a visit from Mr. Falkland. Mr. Falkland proceeded, without ceremony, to explain the motive of his coming. Mr. Tyrrell, said he, I am come to have an amicable explanation with you. Explanation? What is my offence? None in the world, sir, and for that reason I conceive this is the fittest time to come to a right understanding. You are in a devil of a hurry, sir. Are you clear that this haste will not mar, instead of make an understanding? I think I am, sir. I have great faith in the purity of my intentions, and I will not doubt, when you perceive the view with which I come, that you will willingly cooperate with it. Mayhap, Mr. Falkland, we may not agree about that. One man thinks one way, and another man thinks another. Mayhap I do not think I have any great reason to be pleased with you already. It may be so. I cannot, however, charge myself with having given you reason to be displeased. Well, sir, you have no right to put me out of humour with myself. If you come to play upon me and try what sort of a fellow you shall have to deal with, damn me if you shall have any reason to hug yourself upon the experiment. Nothing, sir, is more easy for us than to quarrel. If you desire that, there is no fear that you will find opportunities." "'Damn me, sir, if I do not believe you are come to bully me!' "'Mr. Tyrrell, sir, have a care!' "'Of what, sir? Do you threaten me? Damn my soul, who are you? What do you come here for?' The fieriness of Mr. Tyrrell brought Mr. Falkland to his recollection. "'I am wrong,' said he. "'I confess it. I came for purposes of peace.' With that view I have taken the liberty to visit you. Whatever, therefore, might be my feelings upon another occasion, I am bound to suppress them now. Ho! Oh, well, sir, and what have you further to offer? Mr. Tyrrell, proceeded Mr. Falkland, you will readily imagine that the cause that brought me was not a slight one. I would not have troubled you with visit, but for important reasons. My coming is a pledge how deeply I am myself impressed with what I have to communicate. We are in a critical situation. We are upon the brink of a whirlpool which, if once it get hold of us, will render all further deliberation impotent. And unfortunate jealousy seems to have insinuated itself between us, which I would willingly remove. 
and I come to ask your assistance. We are both of us nice of temper, we are both apt to kindle and warm of resentment. Precaution in this stage can be dishonourable to neither. The time may come when we shall wish we had employed it, and find it too late. Why should we be enemies? Our tastes are different, our pursuits need not interfere. We both of us amply possess the means of happiness. We may be respected by all, and spend a long life of tranquillity and enjoyment. Will it be wise in us to exchange this prospect for the fruits of strife? A strife between persons with our peculiarities and our weaknesses includes consequences that I shudder to think of. I fear, sir, that it is pregnant with death, at least to one of us, and with misfortune and remorse to the survivor. Upon my soul you are a strange man. Why trouble me with your prophecies and forebodings? Because it is necessary to your happiness. Because it becomes me to tell you of our danger now, rather than wait till my character will allow this tranquillity no longer. By quarrelling we shall but imitate the great mass of mankind who could easily quarrel in our place. Let us do better. Let us show that we have the magnanimity to condemn petty misunderstandings. By thus judging we shall do ourselves most substantial honour. By a contrary conduct we shall merely present a comedy for the amusement of our acquaintance. Do you think so? There may be something in that. Damn me if I consent to be the jest of any man living. You are right, Mr. Trill. Let us each act in the manner best calculated to excite respect. We neither of us wish to change roads. Let us each suffer the other to pursue his own track unmolested. Be this our compact. And by mutual forbearance, let us preserve mutual peace. Saying this, Mr. Falkland offered his hand to Mr. Tyrrell in token of fellowship. But the gesture was too significant. The wayward rustic, who seemed to have been somewhat impressed by what had preceded, taken as he now was by surprise, shrunk back. Mr. Falkland was again ready to take fire upon this new slight, but he checked himself. "'All oh, this is very unaccountable!' cried Mr. Tyrrell. What the devil can have made you so forward, if you had not some sly purpose to answer, by which I am to be overreached? My purpose, replied Mr. Falkland, is a manly and an honest purpose. Why should you refuse a proposition dictated by reason, and an equal regard to the interest of each? Mr. Tyrrell had had an opportunity for pause, and fell back into his habitual character. "'Well, sir, in all this I must own there is some frankness. Now I will return you like for like. It is no matter how I came by it. My temper is rough, and will not be controlled. Mayhap you may think it is a weakness, but I do not desire to see it altered. Till you came I found myself very well. I liked my neighbours, and my neighbours humoured me. But now the case is entirely altered, and as long as I cannot stir abroad without meeting with some mortification in which you are directly or remotely concerned, I am determined to hate you. 
"'Now, sir, if you will only go out of the country or the kingdom, "'to the devil, if you please, so as I may never hear of you any more, "'I will promise never to quarrel with you as long as I live. "'Your rhymes and your rebuses, your quirks and your conundrums, "'may then be everything that is grand, for what I care.' "'Mr. Tyrrell, be reasonable. "'Might not I as well desire you to leave the country as you desire me?' I come to you not as to a master, but an equal. In the society of men we must have something to endure as well as to enjoy. No man must think that the world was made for him. Let us take things as we find them, and accommodate ourselves as we can to unavoidable circumstances. True, sir, all this is fine talking, but I return to my text— we are as God made us. I am neither a philosopher nor a poet to set out upon a wild goose chase of making myself a different man from what you find me. As for consequences, what must be must be. As we brew, we must bake. And so, do you see? I shall not trouble myself about what is to be, but stand up to it with a stout heart when it comes. Only this I can tell you that as long as I find you thrust into my dish every day, I shall hate you as bad as Senna and Valerian. And damn me if I do not think I hate you more for coming to-day, in this pragmatical way, when nobody sent for you, on purpose to show how much wiser you are than all the world besides. Mr. Tyrrell, I have done. I foresaw consequences and came as a friend." I had hoped that, by mutual explanation, we should have come to a better understanding. I am disappointed, but perhaps, when you coolly reflect on what has passed, you will give me credit for my intentions, and think that my proposal was not an unreasonable one. Having said this, Mr. Falkland departed. Through the interview he, no doubt, conducted himself in a way that did him peculiar credit yet the warmth of his temper could not be entirely suppressed, and even when he was most exemplary there was an apparent loftiness in his manner that was calculated to irritate, and the very grandeur with which he suppressed his passions operated indirectly as a taunt to his opponent. The interview was prompted by the noblest sentiments, but it unquestionably served to widen the breach it was intended to heal. For Mr. Tyrrell, he had recourse to his old expedient, and unburthened the tumult of his thoughts to his confidential friend. "'This,' cried he, "'is a new artifice of the fellow, to prove his imagined superiority. We knew well enough that he had the gift of the gab. To be sure, if the world were to be governed by words, he would be in the right box. Oh, yes, he had it all hollow. But what signifies prating?' "'Business must be done in another guess-way than that. "'I wonder what possessed me that I did not kick him. "'But that is all to come. "'This is only a new debt added to the score "'which he shall one day richly pay. "'This Falkland haunts me like a demon. "'I cannot wake, but I think of him. "'I cannot sleep, but I see him. "'He poisons all my pleasures. "'I should be glad to see him torn with tenterhooks "'and to grind his heart-strings with my teeth. "'I shall know no joy till I see him ruined. "'There may be some things right about him, "'but he is my perpetual torment. 
The thought of him hangs like a dead weight upon my heart, and I have a right to shake it off. Does he think I will feel all that I endure for nothing? In spite of the acerbity of Mr. Tyrrell's feelings, it is probable, however, he did some justice to his rival. He regarded him, indeed, with added dislike, but he no longer regarded him as a despicable foe. He avoided his encounter, he forbore to treat him with random hostility. He seemed to lie in wait for his victim, and to collect his venom for a mortal assault. End of chapter 4 of Volume the First